Hey, everybody, welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Our guest today is Rick Ridgway, who might be best described as a fictional character that's come to life. Rick has lived right at the center of the modern outdoor industry, and it feels pretty accurate to think of him as one of its founding fathers. Rick was a part of the first American ascent of K2. He has gone on countless adventures with his friends, Patagonia founder Yvonne Chouinard and the North Face founder Doug Tompkins and filmmaker Jimmy Chin. And he has also been right there working to protect wild places with them and with Christine Tompkins and others. There is simply far too much that could be said and deserves to be said about any introduction of Rick Ridgway. So maybe instead, let me just say this. First, please pay close attention to this conversation. And second, please read Rick's new book, Life Lived Wild, because the combination of our conversation here and Rick's exceptionally good book function as a kind of mentorship program for all of us, I think. And on a personal note, I enjoyed Rick's book and our conversation here so much that after we stopped recording, I told Rick that I had a lot of other things that I wanted to ask him about and get his perspective on. So I told him that I wanted to come see him in California if he'd let me come to see him. And he actually said yes. But he also said that maybe he'd come see me in Crested Butte. So I don't know where we're going to meet up, California or Crested Butte. I just know that I want to meet up. Anyway, if you would like to come check out Crested Butte, we have put together a guide that we think is a really helpful resource for helping you figure out how to get here, and there's also a lot of other useful information in it. So check out our Getting Here guide in the show notes of this episode. And now, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Rick Ridgway. Here we go. Well, Rick, how are you today and where are you today? <laughs> Thanks, Jonathan. I am I'm doing great. <clears throat> and I usually feel like I'm doing great on, on just about all days. Uh, I am in my little house in Ojai, California, not too far from Santa Barbara, Ventura area. And it's been a beautiful day and uh, I've had a good one. I hope you have too. Well, listen, I don't know. This might be one of the hardest questions I ask you. I don't know. We are here in part to talk about this new book of yours called Life Lived Wild. And I wanted to ask you how you like to describe this book. It's a memoir. Uh, It's a reflection on my life, uh, as the title says, uh, lived in uh, a few remaining parts of our planet that are still wild. And it's a book about the adventures, uh, the stories uh, of the places and the people and the experiences I had there. But more than that, my hope is that it's also a book that allows a reader insights into what I've learned in some of those places uh, from the people I've been with uh, over this 
life that I've had in wild places, things I've learned that I've carried back home uh, from the high levels to sea level and try to apply to my life uh, and live my life uh, in ways that I don't think I would have had I not had those experiences. So I hope I've been able to write these stories in a way that allows readers to discover uh, some of those things in the telling of the story. And it would be my hope that anybody reading this book might find a few things in it that they can take and apply to their own lives uh, and think a little differently, perhaps, about their own past. Uh, certainly, that's what I what I hope happens to anybody that reads it. So it is a memoir for sure. And part of your story is that you have spent incredibly intense periods of time with a lot of other really interesting individuals as well. And so it's it's kind of memoir with these side stories that are incredible. And while, you know, I know or knew of most of the players in this book, I was literally kind of learning things on every page about whether it was Doug Tompkins or Yvonne Chouinard or Frank Wells or Dick Bass and the like. In that sense, that's why I was curious how you would – when you said, well, it's a memoir. Okay. But I, I feel like you were also like shining a light on some pretty remarkable folks that you have spent some remarkable times with. Yeah. And uh, I worked really hard to try – in the book to bring out uh, those characters' personalities in ways that revealed what I was learning from them without pedantically telling that to the reader so that it would be, again, my hope that they could discover that in the reading themselves. And another thing, Jonathan, that I, been, that I had uh, that really allowed me to write the book as it turned out the way you read it is a lifetime of journals to draw from. So, the book opens with my first really big adventure and expedition to Mount Everest in the mid-70s when I was the youngest kid on the team of what then was only the second American expedition to ever climb Everest. And on that climb, I started keeping a journal. And when I got back, I had the opportunity to write a book about the expedition that, that was published and uh, I wouldn't have been able to write it with the intimacy I did had I not had that journal. And had I not had uh, whatever caused it, but the the insight to not just write and record the events that were happening, but really record the conversations and the dialogue between the people on the expedition uh, that really did explain through dialogue and conversation the events that were going on. So I learned at an early age, the value of a, a journal that also caught and captured conversations. So I, I started doing that when I was 25 years old, and I kept doing it my whole life. And in my bedroom right now, I've got an old bookcase that I inherited from my aunt that's been in the family for four generations. And in it are, it's full of journals. There's just rows of them. Uh, so when I decided to write a memoir, I took down those books and, and reread them, which was a terrific experience. Uh, I knew that at some point in my life when I was older, as I was keeping all these journals, I would start going through them again. So I had the opportunity to do that. That was deeply fulfilling. And, and gosh, like all of us, 
uh, there were so many things in those journals that I had f- completely forgotten, yet they were still, when I read them again, the memories came back and, and, and they refreshed those memories. So the information's in there, in my head, that is. But, you know, like all of us listening to this know, you need a trigger, whatever it is, to sometimes pull things out. And the journals were that. But then I was able to use the journals to record, as it were, the conversations between the characters uh, in the stories in a way that I think really adds, I hope, to the freshness of their telling and, and, and especially to the insights into those characters that I hope readers can have, just as I did in, in the experiences through what people were saying and talking about to each other. Let me just say, yes, it is effective. <laughs> Quick side note, I don't know if we'll come back to this. I literally wrote in my notes while reading this book, there's a chapter called Men Against the Clouds. And on page 73 in my notes, I wrote, I did not enjoy reading about the avalanche on October 13th, 1980. I also wrote five pages later. Well, actually what I wrote is this chapter is super fucked up. This is not to say people should not read this. I think this is to underscore what you've just said about putting people back in the moment. I'm not even sure if I want to talk about that chapter. I just want people to read this. But um, And my next question that I was going to ask you was, how did you write this? So hearing you say it was, you know, journals have been being written since you were 25, that, that actually makes a lot of sense because I'm not sure how you could have written about these things to have them be as vivid and as fresh as they come off without the strategy that you have just told us about. My goodness. Well, Jonathan... <laughs> Here's something that you know. I I haven't even I haven't thought about this. I tell you for decades. When Jonathan died in my arms, that's what happened in that story. Men against the clouds. My one of my very best friends. When we got in that avalanche, I tried to keep him alive, but he died. And uh, the other two guys I was with that were caught in that avalanche, uh, Kim Schmitz and Yvonne Schoenard, were were injured. And I needed help. They were, especially Kim, was in bad shape. And Jonathan had just died. And Yvonne was delirious walking around. There was a cliff right next to where the avalanche had stopped. I I didn't know if he was going to walk over it. He didn't even know where he was. I needed help. And there was some guys higher on the mountain, but I didn't know if they knew where we were or what had happened to us. But we weren't that far above our base camp. So I got Kim and Yvonne as stabilized as I could. And I started down climbing. And then when I got on the moraine, I just took off on a run to base camp. And I got into base camp out of breath. And there were three or four other climbers, including our doctor. And I told them what had happened. And they packed up the medical bags and they got all the evacuation gear and and left. And there I was by myself. Uh, after my close friend had just died, but just as importantly, after I had nearly died myself and and thought I was going to die for a full minute. So I was sitting in the tent by myself in shock. We were filming. I was uh, the producer of a film we were making as well as the climber. And I was sitting in the tent and I saw the Nagra recorder right there. So I I don't know why I did this, but I took the Nagra and turned it on, and I recorded exactly what had happened. 
And I did that an hour after the avalanche and a half hour after Jonathan died. And I just relived it. And that's what I used to write that chapter that you had a hard time reading. You don't really say in the book when writing became important to you or how writing. You you mentioned you were an avid reader, but I don't recall seeing that part. Like what got you on the path to, you know, writing and and I mean, or if it sort of actually was filmmaking first or help me understand that. No, it was writing. And it really started in college. But I, before then, as as you said, I was a, a reader, a very avid reader. And it was one of my one of my greatest passions. And in college, I took a few literature courses, the University of Hawaii. And one was called The Literature of the South Pacific by a professor named Marjorie Sinclair, who was in her 70s. And I, I fell in love with that woman uh, as a young kid. I just, I fell in love with her as though she was my grandmother. And I think it was mutual. We, we just hit it off. And she really started inspiring me to think about not just reading, but, but writing. So I was a sailor and a surfer as well as a climber. Uh, I don't t- t- tell too much of that phase of my life in the book. We can get to that in a, in a little bit. I had to leave some stuff on the editing floor, as it were. But just three weeks before I was set to graduate and get my degree, I was offered a job to be a professional crew on a big yacht sailing from Honolulu down to the South Pacific. And it was a paying job, $400 a month to be a deckhand on this rich guy's big catch. But it was a, it was not a powerboat. It was a, a full-on, really beautifully elegant sailboat. I went to the dean of the college. I was pretty sure I knew what he was going to say. Uh, and told him my dilemma. And he said, well, there's no choice. There's only one thing you can do. And I was sure he was going to tell me I had to get my degree. And he said, you got to leave and go on the trip. And I got to work with you to figure out how you can get your, how you can graduate. So what he did, he went to my professor. I had three classes to finish. And he went to Marjorie Sinclair. And she said, of course he's going. She said, I'll work with Rick to uh, write some reports on his trip. And then he can take the final exam. If you know, I know he'll do well, and he'll graduate from my class. So that was the arrangement. And down in the Marquesas Islands, Marjorie gave me the stack of books to read. And one of them was Herman Melville's Typee. And it described him jumping ship on Nukuhiva Island, and crossing the island, and finding himself surprisingly in a valley full of cannibals. <laughs> and I just kept, I was captivated by that book as I read and as I was sailing down there myself. So, you know, months later, I end up at Nukuhiva. We're anchored in the bay and I decide I'm going to retrace trek across the island, which I did. Uh, and I wrote a story about it and I sent it to Mrs. Sinclair. And I learned later that she used it as the curricula in her class, as did professors after that, to actually teach the class. And I thought, wow, I've just written something of my own experiences that others have really found value in, to the extent that they're going to continue to find value in it with new students who come along. 
And I thought, you know, I want to do more of this. Like, this is really cool. I, I had such a good time doing this. And here I've, I've, I've experienced in turn this deeply fulfilling reciprocity between writer and reader. I didn't know about that before. That's how I discovered it. And I, I was hooked. And she got me started. <laughs> yeah. I uh, wrote this book originally, Jonathan, as a series of stories. When I got them all done, there was like 50 of them. And, and it was too big. It was going to be a doorstop, not a book. And I realized with the help of a, a friend who was a really good editor that I needed to rewrite it, deeply rewrite it, and to turn it into a memoir. So the story I just told you got left on the floor. But I just had, a, I just had an idea a few weeks ago, and I'm going to do this. So I'm, I'm working with a team now to build a new website for myself. Um, I used to have one, but I left it go defunct, rickridgeway.com. And when I get that done around, you know, in about two weeks, uh, then I think every few weeks, I don't know what the cadence is going to be, but, you know, I'm going to regularly put the stories on the website that hit the deck, including the one I just told you, you know, hiking across uh, Nukuhiva down into the Valley of Taipei, thinking about Herman Melville and the cannibals. This is great news because mostly I was like, I think we already need a follow-up. And by the way, your editor, we're talking about Candace? Yes, Candace. We're talking about the the woman you got thrown in prison? Yeah, that's that's Candace. <laughs> yeah, she she helped me. I mean, this book wouldn't have turned out to be what it is if she hadn't really given me this insight of, and inspired me to turn a bunch of stories into a memoir. Yeah. Yeah. And I I just you know, when I, I, you, we were, before we went on air here, Jonathan, you and I were chatting a little bit about uh, an interview I had up in San Francisco. And I, I invited Candace to that interview uh, to come and sit there with me. And then we went out to dinner together because I hadn't seen her in 50 years, <laughs> 50 years. And she looked just the same. And she said, I look just the same. And she sounded just the same. And she brought her daughter and I told her about my kids. And oh, it was wonderful to, see her again and, and start to catch up. So we're never going to let uh, the years pass again without staying in frequent touch with each other. So if anybody read this book is going to get to meet Candace. And again, in case you missed me saying this the first time, when you're like, oh, my editor really helped shape this book, it's like, are we not going to talk about the fact that you got her thrown in prison? Like the fact that, like, I mean, that's a remarkable chapter in its own right. I mean, the book is just filled with remarkable chapters. But I'm like, man, the fact that Candace ever spoke to you again, let alone helped you so much in the shaping of this book. Rick, I think if you got me thrown in prison under those similar circumstances for that amount of time, I don't I don't know if I don't know if we're gonna be that good going after you know, going forward. Oh, John, you know, Candace just saw it as an opportunity to have a, another unique experience. <laughs> it, it was certainly that. It was certainly that. I did want to ask you, and this is a very selfish question I, I acknowledge up front, as a former philosophy professor who left academia, I, my, my ears kind of always perk up when I see somebody who, I don't know, hangs out a lot in the out of doors. But you you mentioned that you actually thought that you might end up as a professor yourself, right? Perhaps in the field of cultural geography. 
And when I sort of left academia, I felt some guilt maybe for the first like two or three or four years about that. And, you know, I was like, oh, I'm not in the classroom teaching and we're doing some other things. But I just am always interested in that. And that felt like a road not taken at the time for you. Do you think back about some alternative reality where you actually had gone on to teach and live more of a professorial life? Or does that feel like does that feel like old news? Well, I mean, not old news by any means, but I, I suspect that all of us listening to, you know, all, all your listeners uh, will, will be able to, you know, when they hear you asking that question, they're very likely to go back to their own forks in the road. And uh, all of us, I think, have probably tried to imagine uh, in our mind's eye what our own lives would have been like going down that that fork that we didn't take. <laughs> it's a fun. It's a fun thing to do. I think we probably all do that at some point. So yes, I've I've done that, and it would have been such a different life in my own imagining of uh, one fork against the other. Is that the fork that I didn't go down uh, towards? Uh, in academia uh, was in cultural geography, but it was a really underscoring of, of remote cultures in remote geographies. That was my passion. I wanted to experience that interface of uh, people's cultures, their sets of attitudes and beliefs, and how they were shaped by the most remote corners of our world in the most primitive conditions to allow me just to have more insights into who we are and where we've come from uh, by going to those places still on our planet where we humans were going about our lives the way that all of us used to do before uh, technology uh, imposed its layers on how we, how we think about ourselves. So had I gone down academia, I think I still would have been on a lot of adventures in some really remote places. <laughs> so that's that's where my imaginings have taken me. Yeah. So you've talked about your interest in cultural geography, but I have to confess I found myself a little surprised. You mention in the book, you say, I have all my life considered myself an entrepreneur. So we've been talking about your love of the outdoors and remote places. We've been talking about your love of writing. We've been talking about your interest in other cultures. We're not even really talking about things like, I don't know, summiting K2. We should maybe talk about that at some point. But I found it interesting that entrepreneurship wasn't something that, you know, you're like, then I turned 40 and this sort of became more of a thing for me. But to say that you always sort of considered yourself an entrepreneur, I wanted to ask you about that. Well, I take uh, the definition of the word perhaps more widely widely than it's sometimes defined uh, within just the scopes of a, of a business uh, interpretation of the word. But um, I always thought of myself as somebody who loved to have an idea often kind of a zany idea that would require a number of pieces to be put together in kind of a unique confederation uh, to pull off some goal. <laughs> and, and that's one of my definitions of an uh, on, entrepreneurial mind. And so just, you know, for here's an example. There's one story in there about 
climbing that really remote rock spire in the Amazon called Aratidiope. And that had its genesis when I was um, decided I wanted to be a filmmaker. And I'd gone to, I went to uh, somebody who had been my mentor, who I'd met on, on the Everest expedition in 1976, who was a very established filmmaker. I went through a bunch of ideas I'd had in my file cabinet. In my, my file drawers, you'll recall, they were labeled ideas, good ideas, great ideas. I had three drawers. In there was this notes I had taken reading Baron von Humboldt's Travels to the Americas, seeing in the distance the Tepuis in the Guiana Highlands, those uh, tree trunk-shaped rock spires. And I had in the notes of the book, this would be a fantastic expedition to go climb one of these things. So I went to this, you know, I dusted off my notes from reading von Humboldt and um, did a little research and found it a couple of spires that sounded really intriguing, including one that had never been climbed that had a an, a cave that went right through the top of the mountain, one side to the other, like the eye of a needle. And this story is not in the book, but I did write it up, so it'll be on my website. <laughs> and um, I put together a proposal to go climb this thing and explore the cave uh, below the summit because the locals, these Indian people, the Indians that lived in that area believed that it was a lair of a dinosaur creature that descended the mountain and raided villages and ate people. And I wrote all this up. And this filmmaker friend, Mike Hoover, says, this is terrific. He sends it to ABC. And they send back a check, you know, for, God, it was like $3,000 to pay for the whole thing. Off I go. So that's kind of entrepreneurial in a way, I think, yes. in my definition yes. of it. So while researching that climb, I went to National Geographic to back in Washington to talk to some people there. I went to interview a, one of their photographers and writers who had spent a lot of time in Venezuela and had been in that area a little bit. I wanted to pick his brain. And he says, hey, look at this. So he shows me some photographs that he had taken uh, on an overflight uh, in the Orinoco drainage and way in the distance. There's this tiny little needle on the horizon. It's a spire. And it's not a tepui. It's not like all the other formations. This is a spire that has to be made out of granite because that's the only kind of rock that would be shaped like that. But there's no granite in, in the area. It's all quartzite. And I thought, well, I was just intrigued. And then I found a map from the 1930s. And sure enough, right where that little blip on the horizon was, it said on this old geological map, area of suspected granitic intrusion. <laughs> so that's how it started. And then it became another adventure. And it, it is one that I tell in the, in the book. But then I, you know, I did in my life follow or, you know, use my entrepreneurial instincts to start businesses. I had my own company uh, that licensed reproduction rights to photography and film. Uh, I built that into a very successful uh, small business, but I had 20 employees and we did a few million in sales a year. And then I very successfully sold it for a, a lot of money to a bigger company. So I think I earned my bona fides as a entrepreneur in the traditional uh, sense of the word as well. Yeah. As well as in the sense of an adventurer. <laughs> the, the, more, the more fun sense. And then, you know, I, I do, you'll recall, Jonathan, about getting back to the jail story. Uh, the reason I got thrown in jail was when I met those, I met those 
characters on another sailboat, you know, that one of them had been to Colombia. This was in Panama, and he'd been to Colombia, and he knew these Indians that lived up in the highlands that worked in emerald mines, and they pocketed the em- some of the emeralds. You know, they'd, they'd swipe them. Anyway, they had a lot of emeralds, and they also had old single-shot twenty two rifles that they used for subsistence hunting, and they didn't have any ammunition. So he had met, these two guys had met some guy local that worked in the rifle range, and they'd made this deal where this guy was going to order 22 shells, and then they had their sailboat. They were going to smuggle the shells to Columbia, hike them up into the highlands, trade them for emeralds, take the emeralds and sail the boat across the Pacific to Fiji, where there's this uh, Hindi people, you know, half of Fiji are, are of Hindi descendants, uh, South Asian descendants. And there's a whole uh, little group of them who are gem merchants there in Suva, and they were going to trade the emeralds in, cash them in, you know, and then buy an island and start a resort. So we ordered 50,000 rounds at 22 shells, and eventually we got caught thrown in prison. Uh, but I do admit in telling that story that I hadn't really at that point in my life, at 22 or 23 years old, uh, developed the skills to effectively read a business plan. Because <laughs> that business plan, if I had the skills to assess the risk, it wouldn't have been anything I should have decided to try to do. Yeah, business plan, buy some ammo, end up in prison, figure it out from there. And then, you know, we had to wait three weeks to get that much ammo. The guy said, well, just sail the boat around Panama for a little while and we were anchored on the island resort. We saw these girls on the beach, and one of them was Candace. We invited them on the boat, and then everybody else goes to the canal zone to get supplies, and the and the patrol boat comes up alongside us and Candace and may get arrested, just the two of us. So Candace, I mean, I've only known her for a few days. Yeah, my editor gets thrown in the women's prison while I get thrown in the men's prison. And as you know, reading the book, it was serious. My first night there, I uh, saw a guy get beat to death by the guards, dead. Like, we had to call him back to haul his body out. So in the time I was there, I saw five people get killed, and it was serious. And it was serious for Candace, although she was perhaps not in an area, in a prison as violent as mine. Boy, uh, she <laughs> she's such a strong one. And I tell this, you know, she doesn't mind me telling this, because I already got her permission to tell it. But uh, she got called out uh, for interrogation, as I did too. Uh, I wasn't tortured or beaten, but boy, it was the good cop, bad cop thing I had to endure. Always with the threat of you know, not knowing if you were going to get beaten or tortured. Because that happened. <clears throat> I saw it happen. But anyway, Kansas got called out and she was interrogated by uh, Noriega. And at that time, uh, Manuel Noriega wasn't the president, but he was in charge of the, uh, the secret police. And he was really number two in, in the government. So he was, and, and he, in, in a lot of ways, he was the most powerful guy uh, in, in the country. And he was just explicit with her. And he said, um, sex for freedom, you know? I mean, that's, that was it. He just, and she was, very explicit in her reply when she said, you go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, kind of to his credit, he just sent her back to prison and that was it. Eventually we, we got out when uh, the owner of the boat turned himself in and made a deal with the Panamanian officials uh, for our release and uh, eventually his own by giving uh, the Panamanians and especially Norway his boat. They took it. 
That was the trade. It was an 82-foot Alden schooner, one of the most gorgeous boats I'd ever seen. Basically, in case anybody's listening to this wondering if the entire book is kind of like this, the answer is yes. The answer, the answer is yes. If I wasn't actually talking to you, I would assume this was sort of made up. You, this, you don't really seem like a real person, I had to Rick. put a few photographs in there, Jonathan, just to make sure. <laughs> right, to prove. <laughs> exactly. For my benefit, yeah. yeah. You know, we're talking about entrepreneurship and, and you've given us a uh, – you've fleshed out this picture, including when your entrepreneurial endeavors, you know, landed you in prisons – but I am very curious, Yvonne Chouinard is a dear friend of yours, and you have been incredibly close friends, what, since the early 70s? Yeah, um, I met Yvonne just before he started Patagonia, when he was focusing on his uh, climbing business, Chouinard Equipment. And so one of the things that I wanted to get clearer with you, it's like, Okay, Rick at times has held sort of official titles at Patagonia, but even if there were periods where there wasn't an official title, you're going out and adventuring with your best friend who happens to be the founder. And I guess I'm just curious to learn more about how you think about your relationship to that company as you saw it from sort of the earliest days or help people understand, I guess, how you frame your relationship to Patagonia? Well, I was there when the company started. And I also worked as a contract employee uh, from the early days, uh, helping with some of the marketing, taking photographs and uh, writing copy, um, helping with some of the ads, uh, even produced one of the catalogs. Uh, and then... In 1982, um, or shortly after Jonathan died on Minyakonka, and Yvonne was on that trip too, I went back to Nepal to finish a story that Jonathan and I had uh, partially completed for National Geographic on Mount Everest National Park. And I did that for Jonathan's, at the request of Jonathan's wife and his parents to complete the, what would then, what was then his last story for the magazine. And then I was in the Yak and Yeti Hotel, and I saw a beautiful young woman, and, and we got her, my photographer partner and I got her a drink and <clears throat> took her out to dinner. And uh, she looked me up afterwards, and we hit it off, and eventually Jennifer and I married. So she left her job in the fashion industry in New York for Calvin Klein and moved from the Upper East Side to <laughs> the the low rent beach area of Ventura. And she said she wanted, she had worked all her life and she wanted to continue to work. So I introduced her to Chris McDivitt, who was Yvonne's founding CEO of Patagonia. And they hit it off and Chris interviewed my wife, Jennifer, and Chris said, great, we're going to put you in marketing. And Jennifer said, but I don't know anything about marketing. Chris said, neither is anybody else around here. <laughs> So Jennifer and Yvonne started working together to really found the marketing department of Patagonia. And one of the problems they had to solve was this catalog that I had made before I met Jennifer that Yvonne had hired me to do. And it was terrible. It, just, it used the 
company's employees for models and they were all stilted and you know every photograph looked posed and it looked it looked contrived because it was contrived and Yvonne and my wife Jennifer working together came up with this idea of using real people wearing the clothes for real uh, and then they made what then was the first Patagonia catalog in its current uh, you know design and the two of them really remade, well, let me put it this way. The two of them redefined the meaning of authenticity in marketing. They changed the way advertising is done in the United States by a lot of people. So they, they redefined the way marketing is done by a lot of businesses and they raised the bar of the definition of authenticity. And I got to be right there watching it happen. And not only that, my wife then started hiring me to go out and get some of the photographs for this, <laughs> for the catalogs, and uh, would hire me to do some of the copywriting as well. So I had this ringside seat, uh, inside seat too, uh, as the company grew and Yvonne and I remained close as climbing partners uh, and business associates. And then my wife, after 20 years, retired. And uh, shortly after that, I went to work. The company offered me a, a job as a full-time employee when the woman running their uh, environmental initiatives left. And uh, they offered, uh, they offered to, uh, me a job uh, taking over uh, the sustainability and conservation work the company was doing. I didn't know if I wanted to do it because, not because the job wasn't attractive. I mean, if if you're going to have a job, they don't get much better than that. But rather, it was because I was, cons I was cherry of working from one of my best friends. Uh, you know, I didn't. I was cautious whether we might get crosswise. But Jennifer, you know, she was sure I could figure that one out. And then she said, "You know, you always tell me, Rick, that." You like to try everything. So why don't you try this thing called having a regular job? <laughs> so <laughs> shortly after she left the company, I started working there full time. And between the two of us, uh, we were there for um, nearly 40 years of uh, the company's history, which is actually even today, just a little over 40 years old. <laughs> now, I learned so much from Yvonne about business. Uh, and, and from Chris McDivitt, who eventually in the 90s fell in love with Doug Tompkins and left Patagonia to move to South America and join him on his conservation projects. And she is remains one of my closest friends. She is the only person other than my wife who was in the delivery room at the births of all three of our children. So I think Anybody listening to this will get the idea. <laughs> uh, so I learned a lot about running business from her. But I'll tell you who I really learned the most from. And that was the man Chris eventually married, Doug. And Doug Tompkins uh, founded the North Face. And then uh, in the 60s, sold that to invest in his wife's uh, women's wear company, then called Plain Jane, that they rebranded uh, and called Esprit. And they built that into a billion-dollar company that Doug uh, eventually sold his half to fund his conservation work in South America. But Doug was a, a genius marketer. And 
and a designer. I've never been very good at designing. And I've never been really that infatuated with the products, the, the, the stuff. <laughs> but I've been smitten by the challenges of marketing. And perhaps that's because it links so closely to my passion for storytelling. And I really learned so much from Doug about that part of business. I suppose I'm best known as the guy who came up with the idea for Patagonia's famous ad, Don't Buy This Jacket, which is used in the curricula of most business schools in the United States today, and even internationally. <clears throat> it's used in business schools in, in Paris and other parts of Europe. But while I sometimes get the credit for that ad, and I did come up with the, I did mock it up and write it out, and I, I, I did internally at Patagonia have to spend a lot of time to all the way up to the board to get people to sign off on that. It took a while, like two, three years. In 1988, Doug Tompkins ran an ad in fashion trade magazines with a photograph of one of his Spree's best-selling dresses, and above the dress was the headline, Don't Buy This Dress. And the copy explained the long-term consequences of too many people using too much stuff on a planet that has limited resources of how much of those resources can be used for more and more people's stuff. And he tried to explain the long-term consequences of that way back then. I say in the book that of all of us in our posse of successful business people that were outdoor adventurers, that Doug could see farthest over the horizon. And he's the one that I learned the most from and he really taught Yvonne a lot. They learned a lot from each other. Much of what Patagonia became is also the influence of Doug. It's an amazing history and look for those of us who, you know, everywhere you sort of turn, you will see a piece of North Face gear or Patagonia gear. And the kind of getting some of the origin stories of these incredibly close relationships, that is just an entire other reason, I feel like, to read this book. You know, the adventures come for the adventures, but stay to learn just how intertwined all of these characters and all of these major companies came to be. It's really, really remarkable. Yeah. And <laughs> you mentioned Frank Wells at the beginning of our interview here yeah. too. And I learned so much from Frank. He is the one with his partner, Dick Bass, who came up with the idea to try and be the first to climb the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. Uh, Frank's the guy who came up with the name Seven Summits. He, he invented that. And I talk about the phone conversation he and I had when he was asking me what I thought about the name. Uh, you may recall that in the book. Uh, but he, um, you know, I, when I was, Jonathan and I was thinking about <clears throat> how to most succinctly uh, develop Frank's character in, in the book, I decided I wanted to tell about how the influence that, in particular, Yvonne and, and Doug and me and some of the others of us who were part of that Seven Summits uh, 
um, expeditions, you know, the, the influence that we had on, on Frank uh, and how we were able to inspire him into conservation and environmental protection. And then coming out of that, how Frank started his own nonprofit called Environment Now that developed this framework for climate change solutions that was then adopted by the Schwarzenegger administration and directly framed the passage of a bill in the California legislature called Assembly Bill, California's Cap and Trade Bill. And that has become a model for other provinces and states and governments to follow. And it was fascinating for me to think this through. And as I did that, realized that the dotted lines for some of the most robust carbon pricing systems by the most progressive governments on the planet today trace right back to tents pitched on the side of remote mountains with some guys inside stormbound for a few days talking to each other about how to save the world. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's amazing. There is a quote in the book that you mention. And I wanted to ask you how you would answer these questions today. Three questions here. Your name or your person? Which is dearer? Your person, you know. But read the rest of it. So it goes, your name or your person? Which is dearer? Your person or your goods? Which is worth more? Gain or loss? Which is the greater bane? Yeah, that was, Jonathan was a Buddhist. Jonathan the climber who died in my arms on the side of that remote mountain in Tibet in 1980. And he was a journalist as well. And he was also a Buddhist who had been to the Himalayas many times and had studied Buddhism deeply and had spent time in several monasteries in the Himalayas. And his teacher, Goenka, had uh, taught him that. That was uh, a quote from his Buddhist teacher that Jonathan had, had written in one of his journals that I had borrowed from his parents after he died and read them. And it summarized what I'd learned from Jonathan in just three phrases. <laughs> and especially that last one, gain or loss, which is the greater bane. Because that was that's the real lesson. And I hope it's one that is reflected in the book. You know, I hope maybe, Jonathan, you picked up on this in reading it. Because if you think about that and think it through, if, if you consider both gain and loss a bane, well, what's left? Well, it's, con it's what Thoreau called contact. It's what he meant when he advocated that all of us spend time in nature, in wildness, that we all spend time close to the earth, that we all spend time connected closely to the people that we care most about. And so it's, it's contact and it's connection and it's living deeply and thoroughly in the moment. That's what that means. It means the, the importance 
of engagement with everything going on around us without the distraction of gain or loss. So huh, maybe the things I've tried to explain in this book that I've, as I said, taken from my expeditions and trips and the people that I've learned from and brought home to try to guide my own life, that I also try to include in my book that the reader might discover the same things, that might be the most important one. Do you think about legacy? I think legacy gets a, a little bit of a bad rap because it sounds egotistical and and it can so easily be. But it, it can also be the awareness that whatever insights that we have in our individual lives that we can pass on that might add value to the lives of those we leave behind when it's our turn to die is perhaps the only immortality, true immortality that any of us could hope for. And if that kind of immortality becomes an individual's legacy such that it aids and lifts and, and helps those who follow after that individual dies, then I'll take that. So spell this out for us. A close listener of this conversation might already be able to kind of answer the question, I think, but how would you think about currently or frame what you might wish your own legacy to be? I think it is to live your life connected to nature, connected to the people that you're closest to, that you love the most, your closest friends, in a way that gives to them instead of takes from them. And that what you give to them is an awareness of how important it is to pay attention to everything that goes on around you. Because everything is always changing and everything is always connected. Final question. What's the best question I haven't asked you. You know, I, I was in New York last week and I, I got to meet this Sherpa Nimsa who just climbed the, all the 8,000 meter peaks in seven months. And uh, I had dinner with him at Jimmy Chin's house. And, um, and then Jim, Jimmy took me over the next day to see um, a film uh, on his Nimsa's climbs. It's going to come out on Netflix in a few weeks. But there was, you know, not surprisingly, uh, one of the people that was the thread through it that they interviewed was Reinhold uh, Messner, of course. And Reinhold, you know, was asked to respond to the critics who, you know, claim that who were criticizing them so for, you know, using oxygen or doing it as a stunt or, you know, just the, the usual sort of criticisms that people, anybody would get doing something that it, and, and in the in the film, Reinhold says, most people fail to realize that as soon as they're born, they're starting to die. And he said, most people don't understand the absurdity of life. And with that understanding, they don't appreciate the need to fill the space with passion and commitment and joy. So that so succinctly represents my own view. And 
and it represents the way I've tried to live my life. Well, Rick, I think that is part of the reason why I was so looking forward to this conversation. And one of the things I like most about my job is I get to have conversations with people and just get to say directly to them, you know, thank you. This life you've lived, the books you've written, this latest book you've written, these really are gifts on so many levels to those of us who like to do some of the things we all like to do, you know, in the out of doors. It's a real honor to to get to connect with you and and talk about some of this. As I was reading the book, I found myself thinking first, I'm sending a copy of this book to my mom and I need to send it to our bike editor. And my list kept kind of growing. And so uh, I think you have the longest list I've ever had of people I need to send a book to. I I hope I'm not a big hit on your pocketbook. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. It's worth it. It's worth it. And, And it's just so interesting because, you know, some people I know well and trust well have been asking me for some time now, you know, you've, you've met Rick, right? And I was like, no, not yet. Finally, the answer, I can say yes. Not only that, but the book really is a gift. The life you've lived truly has been wild. And I can't wait for more people to read this thing, learn more about you, learn more about the major players in your own life. And surely, um, get to sort of uh, use this book as a catalyst to think about their own lives as well. So on many fronts, thank you. Oh, on many fronts, thank you, Jonathan. I really appreciated uh, our conversation. Well, Rick, a pleasure. Take good care. And I hope we get to connect again down the line. The pleasure has been mine, Jonathan. Thank you. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Rick for the conversation, and I want to encourage all of you to read Rick's book, Life Lived Wild. I also want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and from all of us here in Gunnison and Crested Butte, Colorado, please take good care of yourself and everybody else, and we will talk to you again later this week.